0: Faith Memorial Church was founded in 1945 as Cleveland Evangelistic Center. A lot has changed since then, but one thing hasn't. Faith Memorial Church's passion for Christ and compassion for the people of our community. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 we will be in the first verse is where we're going to start out. And if you want to, we're going to go to Luke chapter 14 a little bit later in the message so you can earmark that place in your Bible if you feel the necessity. You know, to be honest, I really didn't want to preach from Luke this Sunday. <laughs> I didn't want to preach from Luke. I uh, I told the Lord, and I jokingly shared it with my wife, but I told the Lord, I said, Lord, if I knew I was going to be in Luke so much, I'd have just started a series and we'd have just preached the book of Luke. <laughs> Because we were in Luke last week for the temptation, the baptism of Jesus. We were in Luke the week before that for the circumcision and the childhood of Jesus. We were in Luke the week before that for the incarnation of Jesus. And we were in Luke before that for the Emmaus journey and how all of the Old Testament speaks to the coming of Christ. And so I was like, Lord, I've been in Luke for weeks. Not that I mind. I mean, it's your word. It's great. Fantastic. But is this really what you want? And so I convinced myself that it wasn't what he wanted, and I started to try to prepare this message out of the Gospel of Mark because <laughs> the Gospels are so fantastic. I mean, Mark is just abrupt and short and to the point. And so you got to preach. If you're doing the Gospels, you've got to preach out of Mark every chance you get because Luke usually says it better, and so does Matthew. No offense to Mark, but, hey <laughs> <laughs> but I keep coming back to Luke, and... The reason is, is because Luke gives such a detailed account of the narrative, what actually happened. You know, Matthew is way more detailed in the teachings of Jesus and the parables and you know, how Jesus fulfills Old Testament scripture, but, and John, he's not concerned about the narrative. He's not concerned about the chronological order of events. John's just like, hey, Jesus is God, let me show you why. And Mark's like, hey, Jesus did some cool stuff, here's what it is. So, Luke just seems to be something that we keep coming back. Do you have that image, John, of our series? Maybe. Well while he looks for that, I wanna I want to do a little bit of recap to kind of explain my point here. We started several weeks ago a series, I know nothing. Wonderful. Wonderful. And the series is really a response to the way that some people choose to do ministry. I'm not beating up on them. I'm not faulting them. I'm not saying that they're going about it entirely wrong and their heart's not after God. Some of them maybe yes, I don't know. But I'm saying that I can't do it that way. And the way that I'm talking about ministry is in this programmatic, natural, materialistic, organized, planned out, pristine, pretty, eloquent way to do ministry. I just can't do that. That's not who God made me to be. And when I started this series, it was originally going to be a standalone message, and I was just going to preach I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Remember the church at Corinth? Remember how I told you when I'm having a bad day or I feel like my church sucks or I suck, I look at the church at Corinth and say, Wow, there's still hope for me because they suck worse than I do? <laughs> I mean, I'm serious incest heresy don't even believe in the resurrection or believe that it's already passed they're praying for dead people i mean the list goes on and on and on they're suing each other they're experiencing division and christian christian celebrityism i mean it's all over the gamut all the weird stuff that they're participating in and paul doesn't give up on them he doesn't also doesn't start out you know, trying to just flesh out all these natural remedies and programmatic ways to fix the problem. He starts by laying the foundation in Jesus. And he says, when I was among you, yeah, you got problems, but when I was among you, I resolved to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified, right? That's, and I've went over this through several times throughout the series because it's important. Because we're not doing like a lecture circuit. We're not walking through the person and work or the life and ministry of Jesus just for the sake of collecting facts. Be careful how many facts you collect, church, because you're going to give account for what you do with those facts. We learn a lot, but we're responsible for what we do with the information we possess. You're held accountable for what you know. You're not judged according to what you don't know. You're judged according to what you do know. And so the more we know... That's why James says, Be not many teachers, brethren, or be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. You're judged for what you know. And you're also judged if you refuse to learn more. So it's kind of like a catch-22. But (laughs) anyway, that's not the point. The point is, is we're not just collecting information for the sake of information. We're doing it because Paul uses this as a foundation to deal with the issues of the Corinthian church. And so... The life and ministry of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ, has practical value and spiritual messages that we can take and input or superimpose on our situation to fix our mess. How many of you guys are interested in fixing your mess? How many of you guys don't think you have a mess? That's a whole different problem. Pride's dealt with too. Hey, <laughs> deceit is dealt with too. <laughs> Lord help me (laughs) say amen church just one time I want to know you're here amen hallelujah if I was looking this way (laughs) anyway hey hallelujah hallelujah but the point is is to take a journey through the life of Jesus and the ministry and to see what does that mean for us today granted I know he died for me he saved me great now what Because a lot of churches don't answer that question. They just preach the same thing over and over. Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He took your sin upon Himself. He took it to the cross. He died. Now you're good. Great. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Say your little prayer and go home happy. (laughs) But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. There is Jesus died so that He could do a work in you. So that then He could do a work through you. And the only way that we know what that work is is to look at what He did. Because He's the model. He's the example. And so we started way back in eternity past covenant of redemption. We went to creation. We showed that Jesus was co-eternal with the Father. That He was the one who through God made the heavens and the earth. And then we went and showed He fulfilled all Old Testament prophecy. And we showed the sovereignty of God in creation. And how God will move the heavens and the earth to bring His will to pass. And then we showed... That the blood of Jesus was shed seven times. That it was shed in eternity past, that it was shed at His circumcision in Getzmany at the whipping post in the judgment hall on the Via Della Rosa and then on the cross. And then He then took and sprinkled that blood in the grave and in the heavenly mercy seat. And we showed that the blood cleanses us from all sin and paved the way for us to be anointed with the Spirit and with the oil of gladness in particular because that's a big one for me right now. Because God doesn't want you to mourn your Christianity. He wants you to be joyful in it. And then... We are brought to where we're at today. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. Let's read it and then let's talk about it. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night, and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Mm. For he was astonished and all that were with him at the draw of the fish which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. This is honestly one of my favorite things of scripture and i say that a lot my favorite my favorite my favorite because it's all my favorite but this is honestly one of my favorite accounts especially from the gospels not just luke's account but luke's and mark's and matthew's and john's combined to the complete narrative and it's the calling of peter james john andrew and then also matthew Levi is included in that as well it's the calling of the big five See, Jesus, there were levels in his disciples. We don't talk about this, but Jesus had 12 disciples. And, you know, one of them was a little, eh. (laughs) But out of the other 11, you have the big five, which is Peter, uh, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew. Big five. And then you have the big three, which is Peter, James, and John. And then you have John, the disciple that Jesus loved. So there's levels in the 12 disciples. And that's because Jesus calls us, but how far are we willing to go into intimacy with him? That's left up to us. Jesus, when he says this, he says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, that's from Mark's account of this story. Mark chapter 1, you can read from that account later. But he says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. See, this whole passage and Luke 14, which we're going to go to, is all about the call of Jesus to come be a disciple. See, Christianity is all about discipleship. Our journey in Christianity is all about discipleship. And a disciple is someone that takes upon the discipline of their master. That's where we get the word discipline, disciple. It's all about taking on the teaching, the discipline, the yoke of the master. That's why Jesus says, ye who are weary and heavy laden, um, come and take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Like that whole idea there is come and be my disciple. Jesus doesn't say, be transformed and then come. He says, come follow me and I will make you something. The the initiation is, wherever you're at, whoever you are, whatever you're doing, stop and come follow me. Faith says this all the time. I don't know where she got it, but it's good. I think she got it from Stephanie Gretzinger who got it from someone else. But the idea is this. Jesus only ever says, come follow me. Right? Right? Did Jesus call you to be a deacon? Did Jesus call you to be a minister? Did Jesus call me to be a pastor or a preacher? He first and foremost calls me to follow Him. Now in that process of following Him, I may end up here, but He calls me to follow Him. It's about Jesus. It's about intimacy with Him and about relationship with Him. He says, follow me and I'm going to make you into something. See, when you guys come to the cool members meeting that's going to happen in November and we're going to talk about our core values as a church which are really mind and face core values that we just kind of pasted onto the church because they're awesome. Actually they're this cool. And if he watches this he'll he'll kind of do a shout out probably or text me and say oh you mentioned me. But I talked to somebody the other day from the church that we planted in Pennsylvania and we gave them these core values because they're our core values. And I was talking, I said, yeah, I'm going to keep these, even though they were from, you know, we use them in Pennsylvania, we're still going to use them. And he's like, well, yeah, I don't even go to that church anymore, but I use these to filter out my everyday life. Like, I still run what I'm doing against these core values. They're fantastic. And in order to find out what all of them are, you have to come on Wednesday, that Wednesday, first Wednesday in November, praise God, hallelujah. That's a little cell in there. (laughs) But one of them, is on discipleship and disciple making. And it's not really like a a pithy quote or statement. It's a definition. And Faith and I, we define disciple as this. A disciple is someone that is continually learning to be changed by Jesus, to be with Jesus, and to be on mission with Jesus. A disciple is a continual learner. It's not somebody that just comes up, prays the prayer, and then is done. It's done. No, it's somebody that comes up and realizes that the prayer is an initiation in the beginning, a birth. When, when you are born, your life doesn't just stay there. Like your mother gives birth to you and you're done. Hallelujah. Like that's not... No, you got to grow up. you got to learn to talk and to walk and to write and to teach and to all the cool stuff and then whatever job you get. Like it's not like you have a baby and it's like, woo, you have arrived. You've succeeded. Like, No but that's the way we treat discipleship we say you're born hallelujah job done that is not what discipleship is it's the initiation in the beginning to a lifelong journey I don't care if you're 17 or 75 you are still a learner Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Hey, church, if you can't shout about nothing else, you can shout about that. Amen. Hallelujah. But no, seriously, you never stop learning. That's why I don't understand when I talk to pastors and I'm like, have you been reading? What have you been studying? Who have you been learning from? And they're like, well, I'm not... It's like, what? Like, are you just still serving yesterday's manna? Because you remember what yesterday's manna is. I won't say it again, Loisanne. Don't freak out. (laughs) Hallelujah! She's praising over there now. But you remember what yesterday's manna is. It's not good anymore. But that's what we do. We just say, oh, you were born. Yay, you can be done. Or you made it through seminary. You don't have to learn anymore. And it's like, do you really think that Jesus doesn't have anything else to teach you? The disciples had three and a half years of the best seminary in the world. And guess what? Jesus died, rose from the dead, and said, hey, you guys aren't done yet. You need 40 more days. <laughs> like this is this is after this is postgraduate school. But seriously, you're never done. And that can be daunting, but it can also be joyous because it's an invitation into a lifelong journey filled with joy and excitement. If you could learn everything that there was to know about Christianity, about Jesus, it would get boring. But you're never done. Every time I open this Bible, if I give it any time at all God teaches me something new and I'm pretty smart that's not the easiest thing in the world to do (laughs) anyway anyway but seriously it's a journey into discipleship and there's only one way to do it to deny yourself to die Dietrich Bonhoeffer says the call to discipleship is the call to come and die. You die to yourself. You forsake everything and everyone. And we'll get to that more in a minute. But I want to break down. Because what I want to deal with this week is excuses. Excuses. (laughs) Because we're good at excuses, church. We're good at excuses. (laughs) Listen, I... This is, this is not a sale, but I, I watched a show called The Office. I watched. I have watched a show called The Office. And during this, there's this one scene where the boss, Michael Scott, nobody... He, he's, re- he's really hard to handle. He's an EGR, extra grace required person. He's hard to tolerate. And he's all the time trying to get people to go out to lunch with him. And... They don't want to. So they come up with every excuse in the world. And there's one scene where he walks out and Jim and Ryan are sitting right here, two other characters. And he says, hey, do you guys want to come to lunch with me? And Ryan says, I can't. I just ate there yesterday. I got sick. My mom invited me to lunch. My car broke down. I don't have the time. I'm way behind on work. I mean, he goes through like 30 excuses just. And Jim just looks at him and says, thanks for taking every excuse in the book. And he pulls out his phone and he says, I keep him on my phone. Like, we're good at excuses, church. We got the lock on excuses. The Lord says, go share the gospel with that person. And we're like, Lord, what if... What? They're pro- they look like they're having a rough day. They're busy. Can't you see they're in a hurry? I don't want to distract. I don't want to inoculate them against the gospel. I don't want them to think that I'm crazy. I don't want to ruin my reputation. What if they get mad at me? What if they pick up that can of green beans that they just bought and throw it at me? Like when We just come up with every single excuse in the world not to be obedient. We're good at excuses, church. That's like Paul says, I'm the chief of the sinners. Listen, I can be the chief of excuses. I can be the chief of excuses, and so can you. Let's talk about them. Let's talk about them. Last week we talked about sin, temptation to sin, right? And when we talked about temptation to sin, what we're really talking about is the devil trying to tempt Jesus to do something he shouldn't do. And most of us, when we think about sin, that's what we think about, right? We think about Doing something that we shouldn't do. Going somewhere we shouldn't go. Watching something we shouldn't watch. Tust not, taste not, handle not. You know That's what we think about when we think about sin. But that's only one category of sin. That's sins of commission. Meaning you commit an action you know you're not supposed to commit. There's another type of sin and it's called sins of omission. The Bible says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Sin of omission is when you don't do something that you're supposed to do. And that is just as much a sin as doing something you shouldn't do. Just as much as sin is doing something that you shouldn't do, is not doing something that you should do. And this is where excuses come in. Last week we talked about motivations and temptation to do something wrong. Now we're going to talk about excuses to not do something right. And there are three categories, and we'll get to them in a minute, but I want to talk to you about how the devil likes to come at us. We'll get to our own excuses. See, in this life, you've got three things that wage war against you. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And we can talk about the world all day long. I'm not going to get into that today. Just look at the cultural climate. Just look at what they put on the news. Look at what they teach in the schools. Look at what they preach from their pulpits. Yeah, Oh yeah, the world has some pulpits. Look at what they preach. Look at what they share. Literally, I I was talking about this the other day. There is a well-known minister, has one of the largest churches in America, and he is hosting a vision conference on Christianity with Christian, quote-unquote, ministers and one of them is a lgbtq one of them is transgender that is going to be speaking at his conference no idea what he's what he's doing definitely doesn't have the spirit of god and his father is one of the most prominent ministers that's ever been in america that's all i'm going to say because i say any more, y'all know who i'm talking about hallelujah his name is andy stanley oh Shouldn't have said that, but I did anyway. <laughs> I did anyway. Don't, be careful who you listen to, church. Listen, you can get the word anywhere you want in America. There are 15 channels you can turn on the TV. I was messing with the TV this morning, and there's Daystar, and there's TBN, and there's you know uh, Wellspring, and what a light something, and th- there's all kinds of channels and apps and things you can get anyone you want to teaching or preaching. Be careful who you listen to, because 90% of them are heretics. I'm serious. And if you're not careful, because 80% of what they say is good, that you buy into the other 20% because you're like, they never let me down up to this point. Be careful who you listen to, church. I'm not going to go through and list and say, don't listen to him, don't listen to him, don't listen to him. But I am going to say this, be careful. Weigh everything by the Spirit. Test the spirits to know whether or not they are of God. The first thing that comes against us is a lack of passion. And the world will do this to us. The world will produce a lack of passion in us. It's easy to get distracted. I remember this testimony. A woman from China, she was a missionary in China, and she had done all of this work. I mean, I forget how many people she had led to the Lord and baptized, how many underground churches she had planted, but she was just this wonderful minister of the gospel. And she comes to America for a conference, and she does the conference. And yeah, you know some of our conferences. Some of them are great. Some of them are great, but I'm just talking big picture. And we live in Cleveland, so I have to be careful how I say this because everybody's like, are you talking about my people? I'm not. I'm talking about in general because I've been to conferences in Indianapolis. I've been to conferences in Colorado. I've been to conferences in Pennsylvania. I've been to conferences all over the place. So I'm not talking about the ones here. I'm just talking in general. You have our conferences where we bring in the best singers, We bring in some well-known speakers and we have a good time and party and nobody's life really gets changed and nothing really happens and everybody goes home kind of happy, but really not. It's just a paste over uh, the fact that we're wondering why we don't have any more power than what we actually have. But the woman comes to a conference like this. I'm going to get myself in trouble today. Uh, The woman, I always look at her to measure how how close I am to being excommunicated. (laughs) But the woman comes to a conference and she's a speaker and she speaks and at the end of it it's time for her to go home and she looks to the guys the people that had invited her to come and she says I am so impressed by you and like when I'm first hearing this story I'm like Lord did she hit like an opiate den some point in time like what the mess so impressed by us And but she tells him she says in America you have so many distractions in China, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian because they kill you. <laughs> like, like, you're. if you're a Christian, you're a Christian. But in America, you can be kind of a Christian. Or you can be a Sunday Christian or a Sunday and Wednesday Christian. Or you can be a Christian when it's convenient for you or when something's difficult. And you can not be a Christian the next day and then go back. And nobody says anything because they're doing their same thing. They're living their life the same way. There's so many distractions and it's so easy to be lukewarm and be passionless, and still call yourself a Christian in America. That's why people who are secular and don't go to church, don't have a Bible, don't read the Word, don't follow Jesus, they say, I want to get married. Let's go find a church. That's why I said, when I talked to the church council, I was like, let's just say this. If you want to get married in our church, you have to be coming here for six months. Because I don't want you coming to get married here. Like, why do you want to get married in a church? You're not a Christian. I don't care what moniker you put on your life. You're not a Christian, so why get married in a church? It's because you still want that cultural, traditional value when it suits you because you want to have the pretty wedding in the church. It's like, but what about every other day of your life? doesn't matter because in America, it's so easy to just be whatever, lukewarm Christian. Anyway, passionless. But here's the thing. At the first verse, the first verse, the way that this whole narrative starts, the people are pressing on Jesus to hear the word. That's not passionless. That's being full of passion. And I, I think about this. I mean, they're pressing on him so much. I can just imagine Jesus. He's already backed up to the shore. His feet are probably in the water. And they're pushing him. And he's like, if I back up anymore, I'm going to be swimming. So he says, Peter, let me sit in your boat, push out a little way so he can create this kind of like natural amphitheater and then teach the people. And that's what he does. But they're pressing in because Jesus isn't using a sure microphone. He doesn't have a Bose sound system. Like he's speaking and they're trying to hear what he says because they're hungry for the word. Then I think about this. People die to have this word. In our own day, there's like 50, 52 countries, I think, uh, Voice of the Martyrs just put out 52 countries where the Bible is illegal. There's varying degrees of how illegal it is, whether it be imprisonment or death or fine or whatever, but it's illegal in 52 countries. Illegal. People have to smuggle it in and have church underground. And some of them, if they get found, they get their heads off. But they still do because they have a passion and a hunger. I heard a testimony about a man who converted his entire village because he found the page of 1 Corinthians 13. The page. One page of Scripture and he did more with it than some pastors do with the whole Bible. Think about the Protestant Reformation when the Bible was illegal to have in any other language other than Latin, and how people like Martin Luther and John Wycliffe and William Tyndale suffered, and some of them even gave their lives to translate the Bible to get it in the hands of the average person. And shortly after this, there was a Puritan preacher who sat on his horse and he preached a message and basically what he said was this. He said, he spoke, he has the voice of God, he said, I gave you my word, you didn't have it for a thousand years, I gave you my word and you've neglected it so I'm going to take it back again. And he preached it until the people were on their hands and knees weeping saying, God, please don't take your word from us. I think about Charles Spurgeon, he said there's enough dust on some of our Bibles to write out the word damnation. And I'm like, in 1 Samuel it says this, 1 Samuel 2, when it begins the narrative of his life after Hannah's cool stuff. He says, the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. And the lack of open vision had created a value and a preciousness to the word of God. And in our day, we have Bibles everywhere. Number one sold book in the world. Everywhere. Teaching However you want to get it, until we're gluttons for the Word of God. But you know the thing about gluttony? How many of you guys like to eat? I like to eat. Oh, Thanksgiving is my favorite. Hallelujah. But, <laughs> hey, it's coming soon. We're approaching the mark. I press towards the mark. Anyway. <laughs> hey. But you you know when you eat? Oh, and it's good food. The other day we made fried rice and it was so good. And so you're two, three bowls in and you get, oh yeah, oh yeah, we eat. We eat. We praise God for high metabolism. (laughs) Say, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. (laughs) Listen, listen, I can say this. There is a reason you don't have a lot of underweight pastors in the church of God. We have overcome the spirit of ang- uh, anorexia. Okay? <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> anyway. Moving on. Moving on. But when you know when you eat and you get two or three bowls in or a plate? Maybe you go back for your second plate. You know that feeling where you just you got to let the belt out a few notches and you're just happy but miserable? And then someone walks up to you with another plate of food and like, you want, th- th- you want this? Me, I can't say no to a blessing, but I'm just saying. That feeling where you're like, the thought of food just about makes you sick. Now, 10 minutes ago, depending on how fast of an eater, maybe 30 minutes ago, whatever, you would have mouth-watering, drooling to get another plate, or to get a plate. And now that same plate is like, oh, No. You know what I'm talking about? That feeling? Come on, this is common. No temptation has taken you but that which is common to man. Come on now. (laughs) We do that with the Word of God. We do that with the Word of God. Don't believe me? How's your Bible through a year plan coming? How many of you died in Leviticus? Come on. Come on. Preach to me, church. (laughs) But I'm, I'm serious. How many times do you get up in the morning and struggle to pray? How many of you struggle and have had moments where you're like, Oh, it's First and Second Chronicles. <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about. Come on, church. <laughs> Take the halos off and put them next to you. <laughs> they ain't yours anyway. <laughs> but seriously, we, we have a lack of passion. Sometimes that's what gets us. It's the world, the culture, the distractions. What we have available to us just takes away the value, takes away the preciousness of it. And instead of being gluttons for the Word of God, we're kind of like, okay, it's like taking your vitamins. Like, man, I don't want to do this, but I know it's good for me. Anyway, that's the first thing. That's how the world comes at you, lack of passion. But then the devil, he gets to have his say too, right? Jesus tells Peter, after he did the teaching, he tells Peter, he says, Hey, push out into the deep and cast your nets off. And what does Peter say? He says, Master, I've tried this all night long. I've been here, done this. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll do it. I'm thinking about my kids. Hallelujah. jesus for those of you that watch online everybody is alive and okay nothing is hurt nothing is broken we are fine amen amen thank you jesus because even situations like that could have been a whole lot worse so praise god praise god so peter he says this he says uh nevertheless i'll do it how many times the devil come at you with your past failures how many times the devil come at you with your mistakes? How many times have you told Jesus when he, the Holy Spirit moves on you and he says, hey, they're doing an altar call for healing. Why don't you go up for, to pray for be healed? And you're like, Lord, I've had people lay hands on me. I've had the best and the brightest and the most anointed pray for me. Why do it again? How many of you, when God says, I want you to share the gospel with that family member or that friend, and you're like, Lord, I've done it. I've shared the gospel with them. They don't believe. They won't accept. I'm going to end up getting on their nerves. And you're like, I've tried this. I've done that. I've been there. I've done it over and over and over again. I've messed up over and over and over again. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's like, share the gospel with them. Or tell them this. And you're like, oh my goodness, Lord, I've done that. It hasn't done any good up to this point. And so oftentimes we'll let the devil win and use that as an excuse to not do what we know we're supposed to do. Past failures. Fruitless efforts. It's hard to keep praying for healing when you've prayed for it for 10 years. Isn't it, love? It's hard to keep pushing and keep sharing the gospel with somebody after the 78th time and they still won't believe. Or keep telling somebody that your actions and your conduct actually matters. I don't care what church you go to. I don't care if you go to a Baptist church that tells you your sin doesn't matter. It's paid for. You can do whatever you want. That's not true. Holiness does matter. And if you haven't been changed by grace, you probably haven't been saved by grace. So you need some transformation work in your life. And I've told them that. I don't want to tell them again. Because every time people get mad at me. And it's like, nevertheless, Jesus said your word. Notice what he doesn't let it stop him. The devil comes and says, past failures, fruitless efforts. And Peter says, nevertheless, at your word, Jesus, I'm going to do it even when it doesn't make sense. I'm going to do it even when the devil's whispering in my ear saying it won't work anyway. I'm going to do it because I'm going to be obedient to you, Jesus. Oh, but then it keeps getting better. Because guess what? Peter does it, and this time something happens. Miracle of miracle, wonder of wonders. Something happens. And so what's Peter do? My favorite absolute favorite moment in the narrative of the gospels is this and you want to know why because this was the first thing i ever heard when i god began to do a work in my life when i went into that church the third time weight of sin fell on me i cried through the whole message out in the foyer didn't go in finally went in at the end of the message and it was in Saudi daisy christ family church um, calvin nunley was preaching and he was finished up but he was kind of selling the next series the church was about to start. And this series was on the gospel of Mark. And so he was talking about, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And this narrative was brought up. And it's the narrative of after the miracle, Peter falls at his knees. And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And you know what? The thing that I love about this is you could read this a lot of different ways. But the way that I read this that just wrecks my heart is Peter knows that his sin should prevent him from being there. He knows this man is holy. He knows this man is a prophet. Maybe he already is aware of this man being the Messiah. But whatever the case, he knows he is in a place that his sin shouldn't allow him to be. And yet, he doesn't leave. He falls to his knees and he says, Depart from me, Lord, if that's what you want to do, but I'm not going anywhere. If you want to leave, if you want to curse me, if you want to judge me, do it, But because I know I deserve it. I'm a sinful man, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be as close to your presence as I can possibly be. The devil will try to tell you about your sin and tell you to quit, and tell you to leave, and tell you to give up, and tell you to remove yourself. But Peter doesn't listen he says i'm going to be as close to jesus i fall down at his knees and if he wants to leave it's his prerogative but i'm not going anywhere what we do is we sometimes listen to the devil and we let our sin disqualify us or separate us from jesus when jesus says everyone come to me whosoever will come unto me i will in no wise cast out He says, your sin doesn't separate you from me. I'm paying for that. Everything's handled. I want you. Come follow me. Because he says, Peter, don't fear. Fear not. I'm going to make you into something. Just follow me. Just come, come to me. Come to me. Don't listen to Satan. Satan will put up your past failures, your fruitless efforts, your wasted endeavors, your sin, every mistake you've ever made. He'll put everything up in front of you and say, you're disqualified. And that's sometimes why I hate, I know that there's necessary evils in religion, but sometimes I hate the way that we go about ordaining somebody. Because I have watched people who have had two or three marriages before they came to Christ or even after they came to Christ, but God does a legitimate work in their life, and they're new, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they got to go through huck and muck because we want our papers to be read a certain way. And sometimes I'm like, man, I just wish we had a better spirit of discernment. And I'm not faulting the Church of God or I'm not faulting, you know, the Christian Missionary Alliance or any, anybody that I've been a part of or that I've worked with. I'm not faulting any of them. I'm just saying that because we create institutions and processes because we don't have the level of discernment that I wish we did. I wish we had a greater level of discernment so that that way if somebody had been married two or three times we would be able to feel the Spirit of God on them and say, I know that you've been through this, but God's called you, and your sin doesn't disqualify you. Whether your situation, your circumstances, your past failures, your fruitless efforts, God can begin a new day right now, regardless of your age. Moses didn't get started until he was 80. Like, Regardless of all of that, I can do a work in you right now. If you go, go over to Luke fourteen, go over to Luke fourteen. See, this is the world is going to try to steal your passion with distractions, with whatever else. The devil is going to bring up your past failures, your fruitless efforts, and your sin. I reminded of the story. Uh, it's attributed to Martin Luther. Whether it actually happened, I don't know. But the story is this: Martin Luther was in his room when he was still a monk, while he was waiting on the Lord to flesh out the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and he was sitting there and the devil came to him and the devil appeared to him and the devil started telling him you're a sinner you're wretched here's your failures here's your fruitless efforts here's your sin and martin luther's kind of like tell me something i don't know and so the devil then starts writing his sins on the wall floor wall ceiling writes his sins every sin he's ever committed and martin luther's like keep writing keep writing and the devil's like now i'm done He's like, no, write something else, write some more. And the devil's like, no, I'm done, this is it. This is every sin you've ever committed, every failure, every mistake, every fruitless effort, this is it. All your sins. And he says, well, you got one more thing to write. And the devil said, no, I don't. And he said, yes, you do. You need to write, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth me from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sins. Listen, your fruitless efforts, your past failures, and your sin cannot and will not prevent Jesus from saying, come, follow me. Unless you let them. Passion or being passionless is still up to you. You ever heard the expression you are what you eat? You ever heard that? You ever heard the expression sleep begets sleep? Hallelujah. I like sleep. Naps make you sleep better on Sundays. Praise God. But, (laughs) But that's true. When you're talking about a kid, a young infant, sleep begets sleep. They're not sleeping well, put them to sleep earlier. Let them have more sleep because sleep begets sleep. You are what you eat. Those expressions, they're communicating this ideal that you can control what you desire. Listen, when we first started this journey into healthy eating where we eat only grass-fed beef and we don't do gluten and we don't do sugar, all this all this stuff which we're now we're like 80/20, uh, you know, we 20% exception. Sometimes the 20 is the healthy and the 80 is the exception, but hey, don't judge me. But when you do that, huh, Thanksgiving is the 20. <laughs> Thanksgiving is the 20. <laughs> Don't don't take Thanksgiving from me. Pastor appreciation is also the 20. Praise God. Hallelujah. You bring something sugar-free to me on Sunday, and I'm going to be like, that's a Monday dish. That's not a today dish. Hallelujah. (laughs) But you, when we started this journey, food sucked. I'm serious. Gluten-free. I used to quote Steve Harvey and say, gluten stands for flavor, and they need to put that back in the food. (laughs) Because gluten-free food is not as good as gluten, I'm just saying. But anyway, we started this, and you have to cultivate and develop taste buds. And once you do, going back to the other way of eating is, can be tough. <laughs> Listen, I can't. I, I used to love a Big Mac, and now I try a Big Mac, and it's like eating a cereal box. It ain't good. <laughs> but, sorry, McDonald's, but it's the truth make it the way you used to make it and we'll talk but anyway you cultivate your taste buds you have the ability to cultivate a passion for the word of god by getting into the word of god cultivate a passion for prayer by praying so these your passion your past failures fruitless efforts and your sin only keep you from following jesus if you let them now let's talk about what you do to yourself the world, the flesh, and the devil. We did the world, we did the devil. Now let's talk about what you do to yourself. There's three categories for excuses, and we're going to read them right here. The Verse 16, Luke 14, verse 16. We're going to read down through verse 24. Then said he unto him... A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded and there is yet room. And the Lord said unto his servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. This right here, this passage, this story is about discipleship. If you don't believe me, read the passage following. And he says... If you don't hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister, yea, even your own life also, you're not worthy to be my disciple. And then he goes on and he says, Anyone that does not deny himself and take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He's not worthy to be my disciple. And then he talks about counting the cost and the strategy of one king versus another. And he goes on and the whole thing culminates in this idea of discipleship has a cost. It has a cost. And that cost is everything. Discipleship is the most expensive thing in the world because it doesn't cost everything you have. It costs everything that you are. It's everything. It's everything. And so the story is I've made everything ready. Jesus made everything ready through the person and work of Jesus, through the atonement, through the resurrection, through the giving of the Holy Spirit. He made everything ready. All provisions have been made, and there's, with one consent, three excuses given. Remember the motivations to sin? Appetite, ambition appearance, well, there's three categories for excuse. And the first one is, the guy says, I bought a farm. I need to go see it. He bought a house, and land, sight unseen. I've done this before. We did it when God called us to Mississippi. Never seen the house. We bought it. And we saw it when we showed up with the Utah. U-Haul. When we showed up with Utah. Hallelujah. I don't know why the football team was there, but they were. Anyway, (laughs) when we we showed up with the U-Haul, we... That's the first time we saw the house. And there's, there's anxiety in that. Hey, hey, <laughs> there's anxiety in that. Is the house going to be big enough? Is it going to meet our needs? Is, is it in a good community? Is it going to be good for my kids? Like, how's the water pressure? Come on. If you don't check the water pressure when you're buying a house, you're messing up. Check the water pressure. How's the, huh, nobody likes a wimpy shower. How's the water pressure? You know, like all these questions that you can't answer until you you see so i get it see that's the thing about all the excuses is they're rational like they're justifiable but it becomes this question of priority do they deserve to be exalted above the call of jesus to follow him the first first one is about satisfaction we want to know that our needs are gonna be met. We want to know that our wants are gonna be met and we're like I just don't know. And when I say satisfaction I mean worldly satisfaction because there is no satisfaction greater than God. Nothing even comes close. But there is an aspect of worldly satisfaction. We're like, well I can't watch those movies anymore, I can't go here anymore, I can't do this, and church is on Sunday and Sunday's supposed to be NFL Day and now they have games at nine thirty and if I can't watch the nine thirty game because then and Wednesdays is just difficult because I get off of work and like it just and we, we We worry about our our satisfaction, and we allow that to become an excuse to keep us from just following Jesus. The second, and notice this, satisfaction is a lot like appetite. The second one, the guy buys five yoke of oxen. And he says, I need to go prove him. I need to go test them. Five is the number of grace, but there's yoke. Yoke is two, so it's really ten oxen, which is the number of power. So you could say he is trying to put the grace in agreement with grace under his own power. Or you could get there an easier way and say oxen is a beast of burden, which implies work, and they provide a way to plant, to plow the field so you can plant the grain. So it becomes a question of livelihood and of sustenance, which really just goes back to one word, security. How about security? How are my bills going to get paid? Lord, I don't know if I can take that pay cut to go into ministry or to go plant that church. How are my bills going to be paid? I was making this much money and we were still struggling. And now you want me to take a pay cut and still follow you. And now I'm not going to have insurance either. So how am I going to do that? Because we like to know what tomorrow brings. We like to plan it out. And so sometimes when Jesus says go... It's like, well, I'll go, but can you make sure that this is done? And can you make sure that this is done and make sure that this is done and make sure that this is taken care of and this is provided for? Because we really don't trust the way that we should. So security becomes an excuse. And the third one, security goes hand in hand with ambition. And the third one is simply this. It's probably the most rational of the bunch. Hey, I'd love to follow you, but I just got married. Like, i got to go be with my wife. (laughs) And I love this, this because this illustrates a whole nother problem in the church and in our lives. We create these false dichotomies to where we think that there's only two solutions, two possibilities. That's what dichotomy means is these divisions to where we have this camp or this camp. So he, the guy in the story says, I can either follow Jesus or I can be with my wife. And I'm like, why not go get your wife and both of you follow Jesus? Like, like, I mean, come on now. Like, I, I get it. You want to be with your wife. Bring her along. She should follow Jesus too. But that's not part of the story because we create these dichotomies. And there's a whole nother realm to this. Well, the woman's supposed to be at the house and the man go out. Woman home, man follow Jesus. Like, that's not what Jesus said. That's not what Jesus said. Follow me. Follow me and I'll make you something. Yes, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And this one comes back to the status quo. See, you've got satisfaction, security, status quo. I told you I like alliteration. The status quo is just about appearance. It's about... a approval it's about how do you stack up see I can go be with my wife because that's what everybody else is doing I can't get my wife and bring her to follow you because that would be against the grain we can't do ministry differently than everybody else is doing it because that would not be in keeping with the status quo and people might think ill of us we can't preach against religion while we live in Cleveland because that would be against the status quo we can't do things differently That's what it comes down to, the excuses. And we use these excuses, maybe not in the same measure, but we use these excuses to keep us from following Jesus. We worry about our satisfaction, what's going to be the most pleasing to us in the moment. We worry about our security, how our bills are going to be paid, where our next meal is coming from, what tomorrow is going to hold, or what other people will think of us. And for most of us, the status quo is the biggie. We worry about what other people are going to think of us, and in so doing, we Miss it. We miss it. But you know what I love about this? I'm wrapping up. This is first, second, or third closing, but we're bringing the plane in for a landing right now, I promise. Is this. When the people don't come, what does the master say? He says, go get the poor, the maimed, the broken, the blind. Your brokenness will not prevent the call. Just like the past failures, the fruitless endeavors, and the sin does not prevent Jesus from calling Peter. Your brokenness will not prevent you from being called. You are deserving of the call because God chose to give you the call. And that doesn't matter who you are or where you are. The call is the same. Follow me. And our decision, our response can be one of two things. We can either say, I will come, but. Or we can say, I'll give everything, including who I am to follow you. That's our two decisions. And you know what Jesus says in Matthew 8, the same thing. Three categories of excuses. Guy says, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. He says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This isn't going to beat your worldly satisfaction. This isn't going to give you any security. And then the other guy comes along and says, but Jesus, I want to follow you, but my dad just died. I need to go bury him. And Jesus says, what appears to be really mean. I'm like, wow, Jesus, that was kind of jerk level. But he says, let the dead bury their dead. Follow me. And what Jesus is dealing with is the status quo. The man wanted to follow Jesus, but he didn't want to violate what society expected him to do and be. We don't want to be the outcast. We want to be accepted. And I'm sick and tired of Christians wanting to be accepted by the people in the world. We're supposed to look and sound and feel different. We're supposed to walk through Walmart and say, Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus, for the glory. His mercy endures forever. We're supposed to be looked like weirdos because we are weirdos. <laughs> yes! Praise God. If you can't say amen at being called a weirdo, you're in the wrong place. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. There's two choices. Follow Jesus and give everything or stay at home. That's it, church. You're dismissed.